to put their trust in him. Day of judgment, day of wonders, hark the trumpet's awful sound. Louder than the sound of thunder shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. At his call the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken, by his looks prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of but to those who have confessed, loved and served the Lord below, he will say, come here, ye blessed, see the kingdom I bestow. You forever shall my love and glory know. See the judge our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing, then shall say, this God is mine. Gracious Savior, only in that day for thine. Amen. May he do so. We will open up the word now and hear what God has for us once again from Isaiah 58 and 59. We'll let the, uh, excuse me, 57 and 58. We'll let the uh, children be dismissed to the children's classes. If you would like them to go, kids through age eight can go. Parents, that is up to you. They can go or stay in here and sit with you. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 9, is our text. Isaiah 56. Everyone find it. Get a copy of the word in front of you. This is a large text, and uh, I'd like us all to see the word of God and to let it come to us with the power that God intends for it to have. We're in this final sort of subsection of the entire book. It's been an amazing prophecy, but we are in that section that you could describe under the heading of eschatology, the last things, which is appropriate to come at the end of this book. This is about the end, but the end, while it is already here, is not yet. That is, we are not yet experiencing the full glory that's described in these chapters. And we will not until the Lord is revealed from heaven, until he is manifest, until he returns. The end of all things, the end that this book describes is a glorious end. It's an end 
of righteousness and of peace and of the removal of the curse, of a renewal of all things that were broken and lost in the fall. That reality is ours. Amen? Right? That reality is ours. It is just as surely ours as if it were already possessed by us now. And it is because we are in Christ who already possesses that eternal realm. He is already there and we are there in him. So the end has already been pronounced. This is the way that God can say that by faith you are justified. How will I be declared righteous in that last day? I'm going to be declared righteous because the end is already pronounced now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're in the end, and yet we're still awaiting the end. We live in a reality of the here and now and with, in which both wheat and weeds are growing up in this world until the last day. And so God pronounces both judgment on sin for the wicked and the hope of glory for those who believe. And that's what this passage unfolds, right? They're both here. And God has this passage for us in his providence today. Verses chapter 56, beginning in verse 9 and running through verse 13 of chapter 57. So that whole section from 56 9 to 57, 13, really unfolds the judgment of God. And then in chapter 57, beginning in verse 13 and following, he points us to mercy and hope for those who are his. There's a great separation here in this text, and there is a separation in this world among people. There are those people who will experience the just wrath of God. And there are those people who will experience the everlasting mercies of God. Not because they deserve it by any means, but because they humbly come to him in faith and receive the gift that he has given to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where will you be in that day? Which side of this divide are you on even now? May God give us uh, insight, discernment, and faith even. As we look at this text together, it begins with judgment, judgment upon the wicked. This is chapter 56, verse 9 and following, and there are two groups who are singled out by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. There are the leaders and there are the people. Verses 9 to 12, he deals with irresponsible leaders among his people. You know, it is no small thing to be a leader among God's people, to be a pastor or an elder, to be in leadership as a teacher of God's people, to be a father or a mother in a home with children that God has put under you. It is a great and weighty thing to have the leadership of God's flock of his people. James says that leaders will be judged with greater strictness. It is a great privilege to let the Lord work through you to shepherd others, but it is also a great responsibility. 
In this passage, the Lord deals with leaders who were irresponsible. It begins with a call to beasts, right? Do you see that in verse 9? The Lord is making a call to the beasts of the earth, the beasts of the forest, to come and devour. Come, all you beasts of the field, come to devour, all you beasts of the forest. These beasts are the enemies of the people of God who act in a very beastly way, especially the hostile nations of the earth who are allied against the people of God. Daniel's prophecy sees wicked nations just this way, right? Like great beasts. The prophecy of John in the Revelation have the same sort of imagery. And God calls these Wicked people and nations to do his bidding. And God always does that, right? God's in charge of all. The wicked rulers of the world, God calls them and summons even them to do his bidding. Unbeknownst to them, the nations of the world, we uh, see with all of their might raising themselves up against one another, there's a God behind all of that. And this God calls out to these beasts to come and do what? To devour, to annihilate and destroy, to consume the wicked, to consume them physically, to consume them from the land, the devastation that God would bring upon his people because of their sin, their wickedness upon the nation of Israel, and even to devour spiritually There are beasts out there who would devour spiritually. The Bible uses that exact type of language to describe the enemy who walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When a wild beast is on the prowl to devour the people of God, who should take notice? Who should warn the people? Who should protect the people? Well, their leaders, exactly. And that's what you would hope would have happened in Israel. But these leaders proved irresponsible. He uses three images in this text to describe the leaders of God's people. In verse 10, they're described as watchmen. Watchmen, sentries or lookouts up on the wall gazing out into the distance to see any possible sign of an invading force. That's what the leaders of Israel were supposed to be. But the problem is, he says, his watchmen are what? How does he describe them? They're blind. It's not a good thing to be blind if you're a watchman, (laughs) if you're on watch. These people were spiritually blind. They had no spiritual insight to see the dangers that were facing the people of God. And he says they are without knowledge. Even if, even if they had had enough foresight to see the calamity that was coming, they were not biblically prepared to deal with it, to offer God's people any sort of real hope so that they might be delivered from the judgment that was to come. They are without knowledge. It is a great responsibility to be a leader. Hebrews says that leaders 
watch for people's souls. They're watchmen over people's souls. And that is a heavy responsibility. If God has called you to be a leader in any sort of way, do you feel that? That you are called to keep watch over those little souls in your care? That you are going to have to give an account to the Almighty God for your watching over them? But Israel's leaders were irresponsible, blind, and without knowledge. In verse 10, the end of the verse, he calls them dogs. Think of watchdogs. You know, there are some parts of the world where a watchdog is about the best security system you can have, right? But these dogs have a great problem because that is they are silent. They cannot bark. These leaders had lost their prophetic voice. There was no bark. They were unwilling to call out sin, to warn God's people, to rebuke God's people. They were unwilling to call for repentance and restoration to God. And a big part of that was the end of verse 10, that they were just lazy. They were dreaming and lying down and loving to slumber. Oh, how Satan would love to have leaders who seek their ease, who find it just easier not to be involved, not to deal with the mess, not to warn and not to rebuke. So much easier for a father to just come home from a busy day of work and flop down and not engage. May God deliver me and every leader of his people from the laziness in our holy callings. And these dogs were greedy, verse 11. They had a mighty appetite. They never have enough. These dogs, all they want to do is eat and sleep. They're happy to eat the master's food, but they don't want to get up and chase the foxes out of the hen house. In fact, in some really bad cases, they get a little taste of chicken themselves. And in, in fact, Ezekiel, using a different image, the image of a shepherd, he chastises Israel's shepherds for the same thing. He says, you shepherds are guilty of slaughtering the sheep. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with their wool, and you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. So he says, I will come and I will, God says, I will come and rescue my sheep from the mouths of the shepherds so that they may not be food for them. God, keep us from preachers, from ministers who are living high off the backs of God's people with big houses and private jets but just scratching a few itching ears while the wolves come in and tear apart the people of God. Those Pharisees who were living luxuriously off the pennies of widows in their midst. What a sobering thing it is for any minister to contemplate what really is moving him, motivating him in the calling that God has given him. Is he serving himself or is he serving God's sheep? And then in verse 11, the end of the verse, he turns to that very illustration, the illustration of a shepherd, right? 
They're, these leaders are shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way. Rather than leading the sheep in the way that's best for them, the sh- shepherds lead them in a way that prospers the shepherds. Each for his own gain, one and all, they act this way. And verse 12, they are oblivious to the judgment that is about to fall upon the people. They were oblivious. They said, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, for tomorrow will be like this day. It'll be great beyond measure. We've been living pretty good lives. God's people have been feeding us, taking care of us. And tomorrow will be just like today. And God is warning that his judgment is coming upon a wicked nation. And these men think of nothing but themselves. How many leaders? How many political leaders? How many spiritual leaders will be shocked when God's judgment falls upon a wicked nation and say to themselves, why did we not see this coming? All of you who lead God's people in some way, who teach the people of God, who shepherd a family or are called to serve in a church, take heed. Let us all take heed. Let us all hear the voice of our Lord. God, forgive us for not leading in the way that he would lead his church. That's what we're supposed to do. Be transparent so that he may lead. These were irresponsible leaders. And as the leaders go, so often go the people. And in verse, uh, well, in chapter 57, he begins to speak of his judgment upon idolatrous people. The idolatrous people. Only before he begins to talk specifically about the wicked, he actually, in verse 1, talks about the righteous, right? Look at verse 1, chapter 57. And what he says may be surprising at first glance. He says, the righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. And somebody says, listen, I thought the judgment of God when it falls, that the wicked were supposed to perish. But he's saying the righteous are perishing. This is the death and the removal of the righteous from among a people. And you know, the world might look at that and say, oh look, those those Christians, those righteous people, they're shrinking. They're they're, uh, the the kingdom of of God supposedly is, is getting smaller. Those who follow him are beginning to wake up and realize that this is all uh, just so irrelevant that Christianity will be extinct. But, you know, it's happening in this day, and Isaiah says, you don't understand what's happening. God's people are being taken away, but you don't lay it to heart what's really going on here. Here's the reality. Look at the end of verse 1. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity, right? From the judgment that's about to fall. And when he's taken away, he enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. Death for the righteous 
is to be at peace. It's to be at rest. God take, took them to himself and left a people without many righteous because his judgment was about to fall. Now, instead of being proud that those who are a thorn in their side are finally taken away, they should have mourned that they were being prepared, being groomed for the judgment of God that was about to fall. The marginalization of God's people, the persecution and even martyrdom of the righteous seems like victory to the world. But the reality is that God, through that, is preparing that people for a greater and greater manifestation of his own judgment upon them. Even Sodom would have been spared if there were what? If there would have been just, remember how Abraham sort of kept going down and down? Even if there were ten righteous people, God said he would have spared that city. And in the years to come, it could be that Americans, under the clear and obvious judgment of God, could it be that they'll be able to go back and listen to sermons like this one, texts like this one, and see that God was giving signs of his impending judgment. But while the righteous are being taken away, verse 1, 2, verse 3, the wicked are being summoned. They're being summoned before the bar of God. Verse 3, but you draw near, you sons of the sorceress and offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. You children of disobedience, draw near. You come and stand before my bar of judgment. And the next ten verses, the Lord from his throne of heaven is going to lay out his charges against the wicked of the land. He's going to expose the wickedness of these people. And he exposes their ignorant mocking, verse 4. Whom are you mocking, he asks them rhetorically. Who are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Now, who were they mocking? Well, they were mocking the prophets. You can read about that in the Old Testament. The prophets of God being dismissed as doomsdayers, naysayers. People who did not understand the times. They were mocking the prophets of God, but in reality, the Lord asks, Whom are you mocking? For in your mocking of the prophets of God, you are mocking the word of God himself. And when people dismiss Christian ministers as being out of touch, bigots, people who don't, Square with the times. Who are they really mocking? If that minister is faithful, if he's faithful to God's word, who are they really raising their voice against? Who are they really sticking out their tongue to? But you know, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord will hold them in derision. The Lord always has the last laugh, as it were. He will have his way. Listen, time will tell. 
He exposes their ignorant mocking and he exposes in verse 4, the end of the verse 4 into verse 5, their idolatrous perversions. Their idolatrous perversions, he says, are you not, verse 4, children of transgression, the deceit, the offspring of deceit? You, listen to the way he describes the people. You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, and you who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? This is a reference to two ancient pagan religious rituals, ungodly, wicked rituals. The first are mountaintop fertility rites that would take place um, under great trees that symbolized um, uh, sexual references and often sexual activities were involved in the worship of false deities um, under these trees. And the second, the end of verse 5, is a reference to pagan child sacrifice, which is I got, I've got to say that again, right? To pagan child sacrifice, which has characterized the works of the devil for ages past, the destruction of life. Children burned alive to quote-unquote gods like Moloch. And even the children of Israel, you remember from your reading of the Bible, were, were uh, tempted to go after gods like this. And even today, of course, two of the great idolatries of the modern world involve these things. On the one hand, sexual perversions of lust and pornography that are so rampant. Fornication, uncleanness, adultery, homosexuality, and transgenderism. And on the other hand, the destruction of life, helpless life, the life of the unborn and the life of the elderly who have, are seen as of no value to society anymore. Yeah, these same things, they're pretty much right where we live. And the Lord lays it out, lays his charge out before them, exposing their wickedness. And then in verse 6, he exposes their inanimate inheritance. They're inanimate, unliving, dead, hard, cold inheritance. <laughs> he does it this way. In contrast to his people, of whom he gives himself as their inheritance, as their portion, he says about the wicked, verse 6, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you've poured out your drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Your gods are nothing but granite, God says. Your, your Savior is nothing but a stone. Sometimes we sing one of the Psalms, Foolish men in vain have prayed to the idols they have made. Wooden eye and molten ear, gods which neither see nor hear. All who to such stones have fled shall be like them, 
dull and dead. And there's a truth there, isn't there, that we become like what we worship. And these people, the Lord says, okay, this is your portion. You've given your offerings to these stone gods, then stones will be your everlasting portion. Lifelessness will be your end. Let the stone gods help you when you stand before the judgment of the living and almighty. <laughs> these stones are all you have. And it isn't just that the wicked had committed acts of wickedness. No, they had given themselves to their wickedness. They had bound themselves to other gods in a sort of bigamous covenant with those gods. And in verses 7 to 10, he exposes now their insolent adultery, their spiritual adultery, their spiritual bigamy. He says, verse 7, on a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed. Right? Those high places where they worshipped other gods, he sees it like a bed. And there they went up to offer sacrifice, getting in bed with false gods. He says in verse 8, behind the door and the doorpost you have set up a memorial. What does that mean? Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up a memorial. Well, perhaps the idea is that they're, they're thinking of their acts as being hidden, but it really wasn't so much that. I don't think these things were done out in the open, on the mountaintop, in front of all. Israel, many of the Israelites had become blatant idol worshipers. I think perhaps the Lord is reminding them of what he had said to them way back in Deuteronomy and the giving of the law, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 6. Remember that the Lord said, now when I bring you into the land that I'm going to give you, and you come in and you possess cities that you didn't build, and you enjoy cisterns that you didn't dig, and you eat of the vineyards that you did not plant, when you do all that, then beware lest you what? Lest you forget me, lest you forget that I brought you to this place, and you turn to the other gods, the gods of the nations all around you. And so as a kind of memorial, the Lord said in verse 9 of that chapter, you shall write my commandments upon your doorposts, on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, my law should be always before you when you go in and when you come out and when you stand up and when you sit down and when you lie down to go to bed. My law should be before you, written on the doorposts of your house as a memorial to me. But now he condemns them because they have set up their own memorials, not to the God of Israel, not to the God who exists, but to the false gods all around them. Not obeying the commandments of the Lord, but heeding the testimonies of the false gods, their spiritual lovers, had replaced God in their very bedrooms. And he goes on in the end of verse 8 to say, For deserting me, God says, you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, you have made it wide, you have opened up to many lovers, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. 
Now, I think that's, that's the depth of the depravity here, isn't it? You have made, as it were, a covenant, sort of like entered into another marriage with these other gods by your acts of adultery with them. These people have given themselves, have bound themselves. This is a term that God uses for his relationship with his people. He's in covenant with them, and now they have gone and made covenants with these false gods. This is spiritual bigamy, breaking covenant with God by binding themselves to idols. And at the end of verse 8, he says, You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king, that is the king of a, of a pagan nation. You have journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes like some illicit lover. You've gone to great lengths to join with the ungodly. No extreme is too far. He says in verse 9, you sent your envoys far off. You were willing to send your envoys across the world in order to make covenants with idol worshipers. You sent even down to Sheol, even to the grave. You were wearied of the length of your journey. I mean, it's a long way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength so that you were not faint. And friends, sin is like that, isn't it? It will drag you in further and further and further until it's like somebody will find no end to the lengths that he'll go to to satisfy those idols. He'll go all the way to death to put the sacrifice before his sinful God. Wicked people find endless new strength in pursuing greater wickedness. I mean, it's sometimes, it's sometimes uh, just startling how in, ingenious and persistent people are to go to greater lengths of wickedness. The Lord himself is laying this out before them. Ultimately, there is no such thing for them as going too far what one generation thinks is too far, the next generation thinks is just quaint. No such thing as going too far in cheating on the God who made them. And they can do so because of verse 11 of improper fear. He exposes their improper, their inordinate, their misplaced and misdirected fear. Verse 11, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? See, what was at the root of their disobedience to God? It was fear, but he's questioning the object of their fear. Who was it that you feared? Behind such a bold rejection of God is always a misdirected fear. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Rather than fearing God, Yahweh, they began to fear men. 
to fear nations, to fear other so-called gods. A healthy fear can save your life. Right? Keeps you out of dangerous situations. The greatest thing in all of the universe to fear is God if he's against you. Rather than fearing God, they grew accustomed to his grace and began to fear other gods. In a perverted way, his patience, his long-suffering, his being slow to let his wrath fall upon the nation. I mean, just think about that, how, how patient God was with the Israelites, right? Think of how many generations, after generation, after generation, he kept warning them, he kept giving them prophets, he kept speaking to them, even like maybe he does to you. He, he warns us week after week after week. Listen, do you hear me? Do you hear the warnings of the Lord? He's patient. He's slow to anger. He doesn't let it immediately fall what you deserve. But sometimes when he deals with people that way, that very thing is an excuse for them to lose their fear of him, to not be so concerned about the judgment that he has said is going to fall. And so he, this is what he's getting at in verse 11, isn't it? The, very, the end of verse 11, he says, Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? And, and I think... Probably the idea is that this is the reason that they don't fear him. Though they ought to take him at his word, rather than letting his mercy cause them to be in awe of him, they have caused it to harden their hearts against him. And this is why many men lost their fear of God because of his patience toward them, made it seem to them made it seem to them that he was disinterested, that he was impotent, or even that he is non-existent. Where is the promise of his coming? Has his patience, has his patience, I wonder, with any of us caused us to lose the fear of God? Has, has it been that the fact that he hasn't yet exposed and crushed you with his chastening, has that caused you to lose the fear of God? Oh, listen to the word of God. Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience? Do you presume on the patience of God not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? To repentance. Let repentance be the fruit of his patience, not complacency. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, God says, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
Don't mistake God's mercy for God's complacency. Don't mistake the fact that he hasn't let his judgment fall on you in any obvious way, lead you for one moment to think that you can go on living in sin. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. The Lord exposes their improper fear. And finally, he exposes the ineffective hope of all false religion. Verse 12, I will declare your, this is God speaking, about these wicked people, right? And he says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds. I think he must be speaking um, sarcastically. That is, their self-righteousness of their wickedness, their false religion. I will speak of your, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. No religiosity apart from true faith in Christ will ever profit anybody. And verse 13, and when you cry out, will let your host of gods Let your gods, your collection of idols, deliver you. They're so worthless, the wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them all away. No religion in all the world, no God besides the true and living God, no philosopher or philosophy, no value system, no set of rituals can ever save, but Christ alone. All else are... Vapors in the wind, blown into hell at the breath of God. Let no one rely on anything but the Lord Christ. So the beasts of the world would be unleashed by God's command and call to devour both the leaders and the people who persisted in wickedness. But praise the Lord, there is hope for others. Beginning in verse 13, the end of the verse. There is hope. And the people who have hope are described in certain ways in these verses. And we're just going to kind of deal with them by jumping around here for a moment. But they're described in certain ways. And look at the end of verse 13. Look how the people who have hope are described. He who takes refuge in me. He who takes refuge in God. A refuge, of course, is a place where you run to, where you flee for protection and for deliverance and for help. Well, protection and deliverance and help from what? What's the impending calamity that's going to come upon them? Well, it's the judgment of who? It's the judgment of God. See, do you get what he's saying here? Blessed are those who flee to me for refuge from from me. Blessed are those who flee to me to find refuge from the judgment that I myself will bring upon wickedness. 
He is the God who gives refuge to those who trust in him from himself, from the judgment that he brings. In other words, God saves from God. That's the gospel. God saves from God. And he does so through the person of the servant whom he will raise up to be the deliverer of his people, who is none other than God in the flesh, God with us, come to save us from himself, from his own wrath. And he does so by taking his own wrath upon himself. That servant takes the place of others. He bears their sins in his own body on the tree. He is judged under the wrath of the Father and delivers them from their sin. This is the glorious gospel and blessed are all who take refuge in him. Everyone who humbly takes refuge in God, who trusts in Jesus Christ, is saved from God's own just wrath. Blessed is that kind of person who takes refuge. And in verse 14, now, and verse 18, let's just jump down a little bit. These people are described in another way. Who are these people who have hope? They're people who run to God and his servant for refuge from himself, but they're described in another way. In the end of verse 14, I dwell, God says, in the high and holy place and also with him who is, and here's the way they're described, right? Who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And then look at the end of verse 18. Again, this description is Characteristic of these people. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. These people are characterized by mourning, by lowliness, by contrition, right? The hope that God gives is held out to those kinds of people. And those kinds of people alone, people who are contrite, who are lowly, who are mourning over their sin who are repentant, who are broken, who are in anguish over the flesh that still characterizes them. These are the people, these are the people who have hope given to them from God himself. Does that really characterize your attitude right now towards sin? Contrition, lowliness, brokenness. Does that characterize your attitude towards sin? Only if that's the case is there any hope in this text for you. Apart from this, you belong in the first half of the text. Judgment. The sure judgment of God. And it may wait a long time. But it will come. But God's mercy, His, His grace, His hope, His forgiveness, His healing, and His restoration is promised to those who are contrite, to those who are humble and remorseful, to those who are lowly. In other words, these people are characterized not by pride of rebellion against God. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live life my way. No, they're characterized 
by lowliness under the Almighty God, not by making excuses for their sin, but who make themselves low, who agree with God, who confess their sin, who say the same things about their sin that God says about their sin. Those are the people that God shows great mercy toward. What mercy it is, too, to the lowly. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I wish I had the power to make you contrite, to cause you to mourn. I pray that God will humble you because there is great hope for the lowly. There is always hope for the lowly. And for that kind of person, Isaiah describes the hope that is theirs. And that hope, in the first place, is to be brought into a place of rest and communion with God himself. Look again, we'll just kind of again jump around a little bit. Go back to verse 13. This is the hope of communion, of being in a place where we can have everlasting communion with God and rest in him. He who takes refuge in me, he says in the end of 13, shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And of course, that was true in a sense for Israel typologically that they would be able to go back into the land of Canaan and to Mount Zion and see the temple rebuilt and worship God again there. But of course, the, the picture, the reality is so much greater than the picture. For that temple would be destroyed and Jesus said, I will raise it up again in three days. Hebrews says that all of this points us to the place of our eternal rest, to heavenly Mount Zion, the writer says. And it shall be said, verse 14, still in verse 14, it'll be said, build up, build up. Build up what? Prepare the what? Prepare the way, the road, the path. Build up the road, right? Make a highway. Build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. God himself will come to lowly people who take refuge in him to deliver them from his own just wrath. To those people, God makes a path. He removes every obstruction that ever kept them from himself. How amazing it is that sinners can be at peace with the God whom they sinned against, but we can for those who are humble. And this hope is described, secondly, in terms of the condescension of the holy God. Look in verse 15. God will come down. And this is an amazing thing. Don't miss the wonder of this. God, God, the high and lifted up, the holy of all, will come down to be with the lowly. Verse 15, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. I mean, that's how great this God is. You have to have eternity. You have to have infinity to be a proper dwelling place for him. This God says, this one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, 
separate, distinct, righteous in himself alone. This God who is holy, he says this. Now here's his voice. Listen to this. I dwell in the high and holy place, but also, he says, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. And I do this for the purpose of reviving the spirit of the lowly and reviving the heart of the contrite. What a thing. What a thing that God who dwells on high should also dwell with the lowest of the low. What a thing it is that the only way up is down, is to make ourselves lowly before God. And that He is, here's the wonder, that He is such a God who dwells with lowly sinners who cast themselves upon Him for mercy. What a thing that He's that kind of God. What a blessing for all who trust in Him. And finally, these people are described, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the hope that is held out to them is the hope of being at peace. Finally, being at peace. Look at verse 16. For I will not contend, contend against them forever, the Lord says, nor will I always be angry. For if I were to always be angry with these broken, penitent, humble sinners, then the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I had made, no one would survive the bare justice of God. So he says in verse 17, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. How many of us can look back on times of our lives and see how we were, in a sense, backsliding away from God for a period of time, our lives were characterized by coldness and deadness and hardness and even sin. How many of us would say with the psalmist, with the, uh, the hymn writer, depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear me, the chief of sinners, spare? I have long provoked with I have long withstood his grace long provoked him to his face would not hearken to his calls grieved him by a thousand falls is there any hope for anybody like that well the lord says in verse 18 i have seen him right none of his wickedness was hidden from my face not one act not one thought not one single motivation I have seen, but, look at the end of verse 18, <laughs> I have seen, but I will heal him in spite of what he sees. Oh, amen? I have seen, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him 
and his mourners, all of those who are contrite before him. Verse 19, creating the fruit of the lips. That is the praise of God from the lips of forgiven people. God says, I will create that on their lips. In fact, that's kind of really a part of the end for which God is saving and forgiving them that he may in the end receive the praise and the honor of their lips. As the Lord says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, through him, that is through the Lord Jesus, then let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It is God that brings praise to himself, and he does so by showing mercy to the penitent. He brings such comfort to mourning sinners that it bears fruit. And that fruit is the spontaneous heartfelt praise and worship of him for his mercy. This is why you and I were created. And it only comes, it only comes about when sin is exposed and when God sees and yet chooses to heal those who make themselves lowly and contrite and come to him for refuge. And when God does that for that kind of person, you can't keep that person quiet. He can't stop exclaiming about the amazing mercies of God. The fruit of his lips is apparent. He's been forgiven. And the one who's been forgiven much, he loves much. And to that person, the Lord says, now verse 19, peace, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. What does that person receive? Peace with God. Peace within himself, which is the fruit of peace with God. For all who humble themselves and take refuge in him, both far and near. And Paul quotes this in Ephesians chapter 2 and sees the fulfillment of this in the union of Gentiles who were far from God as well as the Jews who were supposed to be near to him. All who humble themselves before him find peace with God, peace among all the people of God, of every nation, and peace within himself as a child of God. Peace internally, in contrast to the wicked who, verse 20, are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, my God, says my God, for the wicked. And perhaps you're in here this morning and you just can't find peace for your soul. You just, your soul will re- refuses to be at peace. And you just wish you could know some, something of really being at peace with God again. Or something, you, you, you find yourself just unable to be at peace with those around you. Just constant turmoil and conflict. Or no peace within yourself. You're just like that sea that's just roiling and churning all the time. Oh, but how many sinners have testified that the moment they gave their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, they experienced a peace that was unlike anything that they'd ever known. How many a backsliding Christian in really finally coming home and laying everything out and humbling himself before his God 
And agreeing with God about his sin has found the mercy of God overwhelming in his, his soul and ends with just a peace and a lightness and a freedom that he wonders why he held out so long in coming to. God grants peace. This is the gracious condescension of a merciful God and you can know it today. He will never come to those who are proud, to those who are unwilling to yield, to those who make excuses for their sin. They are forever separated from God under his judgment, but those who humble themselves before him dwell with the highest God of all heavens, though they are the lowliest of people, the lowliest of creatures. He condescends to them to eat and to drink and to commune with them, to come into them, to fellowship with them. What a God! To him be the fruit of our lips in everlasting praise and thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for speaking your word to us today. Please drive it home in every heart. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes closed, this is not the end. This is the time for you to respond to God. Every time we hear the word of God, we respond some way or another. We dismiss it, we ignore it, or we yield to it, we take heed, we affirm it, believe it, rejoice in it. Take this time to respond. You walk out of here responding one way or the other. Respond with lowliness, contrition, and trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. going to be dismissed in prayer, we're going to thank God for the food, and we're going to go on, but I think any time a sermon is preached, the preacher always, almost always has a, a, a burden that we not be hearers only, and in a moment, sort of respond without it being a real, deep, and lasting work of God. So don't quickly forget the Word of God. Go home and meditate on this text this afternoon. Continue.
to seek the Lord about what he's spoken to your heart about this morning and seek him with all your heart. He's a gracious God who will draw near. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word today. We pray that you would bless our fellowship, the, uh, the talking around the tables. Lord, let it be edifying. And especially, Lord, bless us as we gather together around the holy table. We pray that you would minister grace to us through the Lord's Supper. We ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.